Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is the 7th of February, 2013, and welcome to the Future of Education. Our special guest is Laura Grace Weldon, among other things, the author of Free Range Learning, How Homeschooling Changes Everything. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Steve. I tried to pick a picture that would be so stereotypically homeschooling that it would put <laughs> us in the right frame of mind. I'm not sure where uh, you found that chicken picture, but... <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. When I did find it, it was very fun. <laughs> the Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for supporting this environment. And uh, my Hack Education tour is about to start up again, uh, except it's going to be changed. The name will be, it's going to be Education Revolution. And uh, over the next three and a half months. I'm going to be in a variety of cities, and so more, more about that soon on my blog. Coming up, these great virtual conferences we do, they are all free. They um, are just a blast. They're focused on, they're highly inclusive. We encourage everybody to, to participate and to present if they're interested. The School Leadership Summit is March 28th. Schoolleadershipsummit.com, taking proposal applications right now. Um, ISTE Unplugged is the community-based activities around the ISTE conference in June, including the all-day Saturday unconference called Hack Education this year with Audrey Waters. Uh, in the virtual conferences in May, we're actually having a worldwide homeschooling conference, Laura. Hmm. It's Pat Ferenga is helping me organize it. These are massive oh, events, hundred, hundreds of presentations of 24 hours a day for X number of days. They're just a lot of fun. Then in July, we will be holding our STEM X conference. That's STEM education and more, thanks to Hewlett Packard. Uh, looks like we're going to schedule a gaming and education conference, I think, in August. And a museum, Future of Museums conference. Well, this should all be lots of fun. And of course, our library, Future of Libraries conference in the fall, as well as the Global Education Conference. Uh, Richard Millington is rescheduling his session on social community management. But Howard Rheingold's team uh, is going to discuss pedagogy. That's peer learning, and a book they've been an open book they've been working on that's just fascinating. That's on next Tuesday. On Wednesday, Michael Fullen is going to talk about education reform and the change process. Uh, Alan November on Monday the 18th on who owns the learning. You'll notice we skipped a, uh, a session on Valentine's Day. You can thank me later. Paul Thomas comes to talk about poverty and the corporate takeover of education. You can see lots more there. New on this list, as of today, is Don Winkle, who's going to talk about student entrepreneurship and the real flipped learning when you give students the responsibility. And a couple of Book Club 2.0 events. So these are books I've always wanted to read that I have um, either the author is not living still or it uh, has not responded to requests for interviews. In this particular case, we will be doing a show on a Seymour paper, it's Mindstorms, on March 14th, and then on um, John Dewey's Experience in Education on April 11th. And if you go to bookclub20.com, you can go to the Mighty Bell spaces where those conversations have already started. If you miss Carol Black, who came on for a second time, she was on this week. The recording of her session is up, as well as over 300 others in full Blackboard Collaborate versions and on MP3s. Carol talked to us about her Occupy Your Brain 
movement. Carol is just really, really fun to talk to. We're sort of on a homeschool, unschool, independent schooling kick right now. Steven Bezruchka talked to us about poverty in some very unique ways. Gary Obermeyer helped us look at Deming and the ways in which Deming transformed manufacturing in Japan and, and the very interesting implications for trust and how you treat workers and how that might be applied to school. Holly Epstein, Ojalvo, and Esther Wojcicki, Wojcicki talked to us about student journalism. Anyway, lots more. Hopefully, something that's of interest to you. This is where you get to indicate where you're participating from. This is always a blast. If you click on the star to the left of the map, you'll have to click on it twice, and then click on the map. You can indicate uh, visually where you're from, and also, if you're willing, put a note in the chat. Let us know. And those of you on the East Coast, uh, we're thinking about you and that blizzard. Wherever you're participating from, or if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for doing so. And I'm going to move away from this map, but feel free to continue to put in the chat those locations. There is a Mighty Bell space for this show. Mighty Bell is the content curation project from Gina Bianchini. The full disclosure is that I do consulting work for Gina. She was the creator of uh, co-creator of Ning, and I've helped her promote that to the education market. And Mighty Bell, again, is another commitment by Gina. These are free services. She just really believes that social software should benefit education. And the link there is in the chat. I tried to put a number of links to Laura's work in there, including a set of blog posts that she wanted to highlight you'll find in there. And you can continue the conversation in that Mighty Bell room after the show. So that's a long introduction, isn't it, Laura? Are you tired already? I'm, I may be tired of looking at that chicken picture. I'm sure. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> OK, so uh, tonight, in the short hour that we have, we're going to try and make the case that homeschooling is a harbinger of educational change. And uh, I was introduced to the homeschooling movement uh, about the time that John Taylor Gatto uh, quit uh, as being, being a teacher and, and published uh, Dumbing Us Down. And it's been very interesting from, for me to see this somewhat consistent disconnect between the homeschool world and the traditional schooling world. And do you think that's changing? I think that homeschooling does not exist in opposition to school um, in any way. And many homeschoolers, um, particularly new homeschoolers, tend to, no, I wouldn't say tend, but some start out in a very schoolish way. Some persist in a very schoolish way, and some find themselves softening into uh, far more child-led or interest-led uh, sort of learning. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a wider openness to the possibilities of education. It's not in contrast to, I don't think. Well, emotionally, it often feels like it is in contrast. So my wife and I would call ourselves independent schoolers, meaning we've utilized the public schooling system very well. We've had great teachers. But when we felt it was appropriate, we took our kids out of school and did things independently. There was always a pretty strong emotional response to that from people. Is, do you see that? 
I, I definitely see that. And we, uh, we were all raised with the mindset that um, true education must flow from instruction and structure and the concept that it can uh, not that it can flow from the child and the experience and uh, the situation is downright threatening to, to us. And I personally did not start out as a homeschooler. I, I am the daughter and granddaughter of teachers. I'm very proud of our educational system in this country. And when I look at teachers and not at the structure that they're forced to work under, and we only began homeschooling after years of struggle with my four kids in fitting into school and it was precipitated at the at a at a horrible juncture when my oldest child was confronted with a gun in the hallways of his school and the administration was completely unwilling to do anything so we began homeschooling the next day so i think you've made a really interesting point which is that um, homeschooling and traditional schooling are not necessarily in opposition, but perhaps uh, conformity and forced-based learning and natural learning are in opposition. And, and either can exist in either case, right? I think that it's very difficult for today's teachers to have enough leeway to create the uh, the excitement and the interest around learning that's necessary for it to truly engage a child. And uh, I know this from my father who taught elementary school for years and had the freedom to create all sorts of exciting programs. Every year his kids made their own business, starting with a business plan. These were fourth, fifth graders. Um, he had uh, all sorts of live animals in the classroom. He had time for very individualized things with kids. Today's teachers don't have that time. At, at home, or homeschooling is largely taking place far outside of the home, it's, it's uh, constantly individualized. It's constantly able to uh, work off of new ideas, new concepts, what you've seen or heard about that very day, and there's no need for it to be static at any time. So this is going to be a hard question, but it's sort of at the heart of, of many of the reform movements would be a desire to go back to that day when your father was teaching. If, if we could reconstruct traditional schooling like that, would you still be a homeschooling advocate? or would you put your kids in a regular school? Well, I've, I have learned an awful lot about um, what learning really is after pulling my kids out of school. And if I look back to those days when my father was teaching, there was, there was no golden time. He had those desks in a row, and there was still that conformity, and still those kids, um, I'm, I'm guessing, but uh, the gifts that each child brings are not necessarily those that can be um, evaluated or tested or taught. They may be um, unusual traits, uh, a sense of justice or um, ability to help people find a common ground or comfort with uncertainty or a way with animals or any number of gifts that our, our world needs. And we uh, diminish those gifts with all sorts of hours of classwork and homework that don't have um, I'm struggling not to use the word relevance, um, 
that, that flatten that diversity that nature teaches us we need to survive. And so I don't think that was a, I don't think there ever was a golden era. And if I can drag this point out a little farther, we have this concept that school is um, some kind of golden opportunity, but school is truly the ex experiment for humanity. School is very new in the long stretch of human history. And the concept that you can take children out of a community and keep them with their peers and structure uh, what should be interesting to them is makes no sense in the context of human history. So I was distracted by Jackie's always provocative posts. Laura, can you say that last sentence again about the experiment? Um, I don't well, know. Well, but the, but the very last point I, you said, <laughs> if you can remember it. If not, I'll, I'll move on. Um, I believe that we have the idea that school is some kind of, uh, if we just do it right, we can, it can be this golden perfect thing. But schooling is the real experiment. Homeschooling or natural learning or learning within the community is the way that humans have always learned. Schooling is a very new uh, concept in the long span of human history. So children always explored and asked questions and they played and they modeled themselves on role models and they were eager to take on meaningful work and be responsible because that is encoded in us as humans. That's how we survived. And to take us away from that and take us out of a community and put us with same-aged peers and pre-structure what's supposed to be interesting and engaging is actually the experiment. Right, and I think you must have said something like that it, uh, something related to benefits, because my mind started to think about the ways in which the existing school structure really does provide benefits to certain segments of our society. Right, so for like John Taylor Gatto mentions that, that it's nice for businesses to have these kind of ready markets of uh, age-banded cohorts who think alike. And it's probably good for politicians to have a, a citizenry which is used to compliance. I mean, there has been some benefit to this. It may not be what we morally have wanted it to be, but it has benefited certain segments of society, right? Um, I, I, I certainly have read much of John Taylor Gatto's um, uh, books and articles, and I do understand the context that he's talking about, and I, I don't, I'm not comfortable slurring schools to that extent. I don't think that every child is sitting there in, in a, some kind of awful enforced conformity, because each one of those children are still individuals and have their own you know, wonder and beauty in there. It's just they don't have as much opportunity to express it. Well said. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, and I, and, and I, we've talked about this lots on the show, which is that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that that there's this malicious intent. But if it's uh, you know if there's a lot of lobbying money being spent on um, legislation and the ways in which culture is defined from a top-down level, um, there's really nobody who benefits financially from an independent learner, so it's easy to see how the system could perpetuate. I don't mean to take us down that path necessarily. Um, so you tell well, a, a story in, in the book. Well, just in terms the, of benefiting. Go ahead. Oops. I, just, I just wanted to toss in, in terms of benefiting 
um, the larger society. When we look at any kind of research about homeschoolers as adults, we find that they uh, tend to be far more engaged. They, they volunteer more. They, they're more likely to vote. They read more regularly. And they are far more um, uh, innovative employees. Yes, and that was the first thing I looked for in the book was I went back to the section on references to find that actual study because there are several that I want to look up. But does that come from the um, Diane Swain Brow study, Home Educated Children and Not Disadvantaged? Did I get the right one uh, there? I have several that I have encountered since writing the book, but I do remember uh, referencing Gary Knowles in there. Um, there was there were several, but I've I've got articles since then that talk about it. Okay, and terrific, and and there's lots on your blog that that uh, surely addresses that. So you tell a story in the book about the potato factory visit, and the ways in which different students would look for different things in that visit, and how that's kind of an indicator of the individuality of students. Um, how is that different in a free-range, natural learning environment than typically in schools? Well, I don't think it's any different in schools. I think that when you've got kids in a class or doing a project in school, and you think that they're all paying attention to um, exactly what's going on, say you're uh, I'm trying to think of something. You're, you're doing some kind of, uh, everybody's making muffins. Let's, you're doing a science lesson, and it's got to do with muffins. And everybody has, you know, one kid gets to put in a teaspoon of that, and the next child gets to mix, and the next child. And you think that everybody's paying attention to exactly what that lesson is supposed to teach them. These kids may be paying, different kids may be paying far more attention to the, the sensory experience of those ingredients or the smell or the interaction between other kids, some glances going on, or the way that their feet feel in their shoes, or the teacher's discomfort with this kind of lesson as compared to a textbook lesson. And the actual thrust of that isn't the education that they had expected. One of the examples I thought was fascinating was um, at the four, five, six-year-old level, they found that pro-social picture books that were supposed to teach children how to behave, very, like the Berenstain Bears, very often created a problem, sibling rivalry or bullying or something. And then at the close to the close of the book, they resolved that. And they found that children actually picked up um, bad language, bad behavior, and uh, anti-social kinds of messages from these books because they weren't paying to, attention to what the adults who wrote those books and promoted them thought uh, they would. They're paying attention to something that was entirely more interesting to them. That's fascinating. Since we probably own every Berenstain Bear book ever written. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, there was also this great little section on the traits associated with a genius. And I don't know if you remember that. I'm going to read it because it's short. And I thought, this is just so fascinating. It's, it just points out the degree to which there is this um, you know, really significant um, difference between the natural learning environment and the compliance environment, which again can happen in either homeschooling or, or schooling. But you, you note here, what traits are associated with geniuses? They don't learn in a straight line. They're highly individual. 
They may not be all that interested in what others think of them and don't necessarily apply common sense to their pursuits. And when their concentration is interrupted, they may react with frustration. So I think I'm a genius. <laughs> I, have a, I have a story that, um, that kind of has something to do with what kids pay attention to and the genius thing, but perhaps a little more about uh, coercive adult-led learning compared to child-led learning. When um, we, we formed a boys' science club, and there were five core kids who were part of it, and this went on for 10 or 12 years. So it was a long-standing science group. And uh, in the early days, these kids were 9 to 12 years old, maybe younger. The uh, different homeschooling parents carefully planned these sessions, bought the materials, you know, had these kids come over, I think it was every other week or so, and kind of supervised. The kids had fun. They played. And when something went wrong, you know, the parents, you know, quickly Googled to find out what it could be wrong and explained it. And we spent time talking about scientific principles and what they could learn. Well, very rapidly, these boys got sick of all these adults uh, hanging over their shoulders. And they wanted to come up with their own projects, their own material lists, and run their own. So that was fine with us. We went off and did our own things. These uh, these kids built um, a hovercraft out of a leaf blower, which actually did hover, although it couldn't carry more than one boy. They built a giant trebuchet. They had many propulsive devices, including uh, some kind of spud gun that had a terrifying trigger. I was afraid to carry this in my car. It looked like a scary device. Um, and they they did not need us at all. They took off uh, fantastically in their own direction, and I think it was that lack of coercion. There was um, much more interest when something went wrong for them to figure out what went wrong. And I think um, it's almost, I think of it as the science club method, how much freedom we gave them, even to do things that seemed kind of questionable on the safety end to us because of their enthusiasm, their, their great uh, grasp of these principles that never had to be elucidated. And interestingly enough, of these five core boys, only one of these boys had a father with a bachelor's degree in college at all. The youngest boy is in college in engineering. Uh, one of the boys has a master's from Harvard. Another of the boys has uh, just been accepted into a PhD program for molecular biology. One of the boys has a master's in library science. And another of the boys is getting his dream job in trail building in the wilderness. So I think the science club did them some good. So uh, if you're watching the chat and, you're, and it's still in that small box and you haven't been in a session before, it can be very frustrating. There's a menu. A drop down at the top right of the chat, and you can click on it, and you can detach the panel and then resize it. So if if, if you're watching that chat go by and it's frustrating you, please feel free to do that, and it'll, it'll be a little bit easier. Danae makes the comment in the chat: Kids can't be too sheltered. They've got to do a job in the real world. Are there sort of common ways in which people worry about natural learning not actually being realistic, and how do you respond to that? I think that that is a common perception along with the common socializing perception that kids are sheltered and don't have real world experience. And what's interesting is 
the experience I've had of homeschooling and the hundred families I interviewed for my book around the world have had the opposite experience. Their kids have not been segregated in a, a building with same-aged peers doing adult-led activities. They instead have been in the real world engaged in all sorts of uh, meaningful and responsible um, learning experiences. And one of the things that made uh, homeschooling interesting for the people I know is learning directly from experts. What we found is when you ask people to learn from them, people who are passionate about their work, they almost always say yes. So my kids and our homeschooling group have spent entire days with uh, chemists, geologists, engineers, potters, um, equest therapy equestrian people, meteorologists. I could, I could make this list go on. I've got several articles where I list some of these uh, things we've done. And uh, my kids played with world-class musicians. They met an astronaut. They, um, they've done extraordinary things. And I want to throw in there that we're not high-income people. We largely have homeschooled using library resources and the internet and politely approaching people. And when you've got uh, preteens or teenagers who are passionate about a subject and they begin to ask this expert, um, just maybe meeting them casually somewhere, really intelligent and engaged questions, you will find those adults want to spend more time with those kids and show them a little of what they know. So we have uh, something like three million teachers just in the United States, a, a significant percentage of whom became teachers because they really cared about students. And for all of the criticisms of teachers these days, those criticisms sound awfully like the kind of conformance compliance testing measures that we've been complaining about students having to put up with. Have you thought about how you might mo how the, our culture might mobilize that really terrific body of people to do more natural learning with the understanding that homeschooling is not likely politically to be um, adopted, and, and this is my opinion, so you can push back on this piece as well. But I don't think it's likely we're going to see a policy change that allows massive amounts of homeschooling. And if that's if I'm right about that, what, what advice do you give teachers and parents and students who stay in the traditional system to get this kind of natural learning? I think you've got like four questions in there. Yeah, sorry um, about that. <laughs> First of all, I don't think the teachers themselves are at all to blame for conformity or test-heavy structures that they are trapped in. I think teachers get involved in teaching because they love that spark of curiosity they see in a kid's eyes. They love that feeling of connecting a child with something that they're excited to learn. And parents know that feeling too. You, you find that book at the library or you get that resource that lets them whatever it is, dig a hold of China, whatever they're excited about. And you feel like you're part of that passionate engagement. And that makes all of us feel more alive. There's, there's something about that that's transformative. In terms of public schooling and homeschooling ever integrating in any way, I can see where people think that they are in opposition. But there is so much to be learned from the way that people have 
been able to um, engage kids in learning well outside the classroom and end up with these highly capable kids who are eager learners well past the traditional school years, there's something to be learned there. And one of the common things I hear from homeschooled kids who go to college or into careers is they are flummoxed by how disengaged their peers are. It's as if they've had so much coercive, you must think this, you must study this, you must remember this for a short period of time, that they have completely shut off that interest in who they are and what makes them feel excited and they just don't want anything else assigned to them. And that's a tragedy. That is a national tragedy. I may have lost the rest of the part of your question. <laughs> no, we're, we're good. Uh, because John just made a question, uh, posted a note in the chat here that I think is a nice segue. He says, his parents were both highly educated, but neither cared for poetry. Poetry became one of his passions, and only because he was exposed to it in high school. So does natural learning only, um, I think the criticism or the concern might be that natural learning in a homeschooling environment only involves the parents. I don't think that's the case, right? It, it's not the case. And there are many parents who homeschool uh, although they're working. And most uh, homeschoolers I know are very engaged with groups of homeschoolers, both online and in their communities. And so there's a great deal of sharing. That science club I mentioned, for example, uh, eventually took place always at my house. And that was easy for me. I have lots of room, and we have tools, and the, the kids were free to do that sort of thing. But I also had huge amounts of time of my own to, to write and edit because my kids were engaged with other families doing other things. Uh, we set up all sorts of learning cooperatives. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to see homeschooling as taking place much at home. And in terms of coming across uh, poetry, for example, you know, there, it's, it's the, I think the number of people and uh, exciting experiences that you're exposed to that, allow, that give you the opportunity to find that you are crazy about um, pottery or Norse mythology or bagpipes or whatever it is. And to have that kind of diversity in, in our experience has been more likely to happen outside of a structured classroom. So Danae asks another question, which I think is probably reflective of a larger concern. She says, um, can you address how a traditional school totally provides for the kids the things you're speaking about when most kids don't even get fed at home? I don't think she means that, but I think she's indicating that. What about those kids whose parents um, wouldn't do as good a job? How does the homeschooling community address that? I, I don't think that homeschooling is for everyone by, by any stretch. I think that it shows that we have lost trust in the capacity of children to learn. And um, she's, she's right. There's such a disengagement that we have handed things off to experts in our society. So we're not responsible for our bodies. We wait till something's wrong. We go to a doctor. And we're not responsible for our kids many times. We just, you know, cart them off and they eat some kind of tube of goo in the back seat and they're dropped off somewhere and somebody is responsible for them. And 
that leads to a, a, a very tragic alienation from the real things that connect us to something meaningful. And, and we do have an epidemic of depression. I'm guessing that might be connected. Well, we talked about this with Carol Black this week, who's the director of um, Schooling the World. And we talked about sort of the, uh, the cycle that can take place when parents and families aren't trusted and uh, the degree to which that, that sort of seems to be taking place in our culture right now. And if we think that in a democratic society, adults are responsible enough to help choose leaders and to make decisions, why would we question their ability to parent? And does that questioning and lack of trust itself create the very, some of the very problems that we then see? And it's a very hard question. I, I think that she's, she's right. And I think that lack of trust, if I can pull that back to uh, early educational uh, intervention with children's lives where we, uh, we don't let babies crawl and touch things and put things in their mouths. We keep them in carriers and we strap them in and instead of holding them and letting them do all these things. And very early we have a lot of structured programs for small children and we want them to learn their ABCs and everything educational. And what we're doing is we are saying that your whole body experience is not important. We're saying that one whole side of your brain experience is not important because this society values the logical, rational, testable kinds of knowledge. And so we have separated our children in our society and of course growing up into adults in our society of people who are disconnected from their intuition and their gut feelings and their, their real drive toward uh, meaning and connection and, and uh, love. So I really agree with that and we've talked a lot again as well on the show about the importance of being self-directed and feeling um, and, and being and feeling competent in order to participate in civic decision making and in, in the workplace. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was the referencing of material around the academic and job success of those who had been uh, who had been gone through a natural learning experience as a youth. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think most people, even homeschoolers, will say, well, yes, but they don't necessarily do any better in, in their jobs. It's just that they're happier people. Um, I'm not sure if I'm understanding the exact slant of your question, but um, we've got a very test-based school structure, which uh, parents and teachers and kids, nobody is happy with. But none of those test scores that kids work so hard to accomplish have real correlations with adult accomplishments. And we're talking real accomplishments like career advancement, social leadership. We're talking even uh, meaningful uh, happiness in meaningful relationships. So they, kids spend years and years in these back-to-basic environments where they've got to kind of quash their curiosity and uh, ignore their own talents because that test score is so important, but it's academic overreach that doesn't stick or have any validity for their future. And when they look at, uh, when we even talk about, you know, oh my gosh, our test scores are lower than some other country, we can't even find association between six test scores in one country 
in developed countries and the success of those nations. And they find that nations that are pulling up their test scores actually have um, a diminishment of kind of the, the innovation and growth and competitiveness that may go back to the kind of education that Alfie Cohen says uh, creates shallow thinking. That's a really, really fascinating point. And I, what it made me think of was that um, schooling or education could almost be a lagging indicator, right? So that if you have a society in which there are certain social and legal structures that allow for uh, innovation and energy and activity to be brought to the marketplace, and the society does well because of that, that they will then often focus on education and spend money on it. But it may be that it actually comes after the fact rather than precipitating it, because that structure and conformance don't necessarily provide that environment for success. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that one, one distinction that we, that we miss is that childhood itself has changed. And the, um, I forgot the term, but they were, they were talking about the radius that a child is free to explore from their home. And it has changed so radically from the 50s where children were free to, you know, just range anywhere as long as they're home in time for dinner or when the street lights went on or whatever. And now kids are shuttled from place to place and they're in all these little enrichment programs or they're, you know, not leaving the, the family room. And as um, Richard Louv said in uh, that nature deficit disorder, it's the, even those experiences outdoor in nature and those play experiences are so essential for kids to develop this this agency and uh, kind of a creative approach to to living that that itself may have that lag time that we're now starting to see. So Danae is is acting as this great sort of um, uh, gadfly in their <laughs> chat, and and I really appreciate it. And so she's saying she feels like this discussion is based on old standards and testing, but not looking forward and project-based learning where schools everywhere are going to be pushed. There is a deeper argument, though, right, that even if schools um, um, change and, and meet some other set, uh, other group of people's expectations for what schools should be, there's still a difference between natural learning, which is self-directed and allows for play and time and a lot of the other things I want to get to, and some particular group's vision of what schooling should be, right? Well, I think that we've gotten um, away from local control of schools and into these larger and larger authoritarian structures on what must be learned and what must be tested. Project-based learning is a far more wonderful approach than this current structure that's getting ever tighter. In Ohio now, they've made the uh, testing so that they're anticipating most third graders will fail the reading test. It's, it's just getting crazier. Um, and Danae has a point. We need to do things that are going to improve schools and help kids uh, you know, manifest their talents and reach their goals. And um, one of the things that I look to as, as a great hope is is to adapt some of the structures of democratic schools for public schools. 
So let's talk about what some of those things would be that are either in democratic schools or that, or that are in free range or natural learning. Um, certainly, we've talked about the importance of being outdoors, but we haven't we haven't come close to the the depth of sort of scientific understanding of the importance of outdoor activity. Do you want to talk about that and then maybe springboard into other things that you think natural learning should be helping us to understand about student learning? Well, I certainly didn't write Richard Loeb's book, but um, there's there's a great deal of scientific evidence for, for movement in terms of brain development and body development that is diminished when you have ever younger children sitting much longer in their seats learning. And simply uh, within the school environment to have a great deal more movement, to have uh, daily phys ed, to have daily recess. We know that the, the most uh, successful schools in the world are in Finland, and after every class, after 45 to hour session class, kids are given a 15 minute, usually outdoor break, regardless of the weather. And it's because it's assumed children have to work off their energy and have some kind of play experiences. And that, I think, continues up to seventh grade. We have gone the opposite way and taken away so much of that kind of movement and play and outdoor time. And I'm very in intrigued by uh, certain kinds of preschools that are now uh, doing much more challenge course type things. And instead of playgrounds, they have rocks and logs and things for kids to climb on, which is kind of like that forest kindergarten concept pulled into a preschool environment. And you know, those directions are exciting ways to explore. We had Jamie McMillan on the show who wrote a book called Legendary Learners. And I get the impression I, I it was a surprise book, yes. that I don't. We did, I did too. I don't think it was something she was looking for. But when she looked at these people who had non-traditional educational backgrounds who then became known as learners and publicly known, one of the commonalities was the amount of time they spent outdoors. Absolutely. I think okay, so that's one of the go ahead. I'm sorry. One of the one of the overall gifts I think that uh, democratic schools as well as any form of homeschooling provides kids is is not necessarily some secret that's embedded in giving kids more choices or following their interests. It gets right down to they just have more time. There's no there's no need for you know mandatory six hours of schoolwork and there's no need for homework. And so kids have this time. They have time to play or to daydream or to, you know, to pick up dance or art or whatever it is that engages them. And I, I think the sheer fact of that time to be comfortable with oneself cannot be overrated. You know, it's interesting what you remember after reading a book. What I really remember after Legendary Learners was also that it was really important that they had time to really dive deeply into something and that they also had the ability to walk away from something and start something else if they didn't stay interested. That That is essential. And we've got this idea that kids should stick with something. You know, you've paid for guitar lessons and darn well you're going to take those guitar lessons for a year and prove it. And you know, there's definitely research that shows that that has no long-term character building uh, traits at all. Kids pick up and drop things 
on what on what appear to be whims, and then they can spend six months being just intensely absorbed in something that's fascinating to them. And I love the way that those things interconnect. One of my kids right now has gotten interested in uh, stone carving because he was interested in Norse myths and he was interested in the old language of the runes. He's been trying to teach himself Swedish. Um, and it just goes all these different directions because he got interested in stone carving, then he got interested in axe making. So he's been researching like the history of that, which got him into study of prehistory. And it just, and of course, there's all sorts of, you know, math and physics involved in any of stone carving and axe making. And it's just gone in all these directions in a relatively short time. I'm really glad you brought up prehistory because there's this sort of trend right now of talking about prehistory and the ways in which we were potentially evolved and conditioned to certain kinds of environments and activities that civilization or farming in the industrial age uh, take us out of and that there's value in looking at pre prehistory or trying to understand uh, communities and cultures that, that maybe show us something. Um, are you kind of following that? I feel like that was in the book too, right? It was. I have just lost your voice. You're totally gone. There's a bit of a lag. I'm afraid to talk over you. Tell me when I come back. There may be a slight slowdown in the system. Uh, your last question had a lot of gaps in there. So if there was a question mark at the end of it, I missed it. <laughs> can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay, terrific. There and there is a there is a longer lag, so something's going on there in the uh, in the tubes. Um, so well, I'm interested in this sort of maybe natural longing that kids have to be independent and to be transitioning to the adult world. And Jackie Gerstein is here in the room, and she and I end up meeting at at least one conference each year and talking about our love of young adult fiction. And it feels to me as though Harry Potter and The Hunger Games and some of these other very popular novels express a desire for of youth to be making adult decisions. Is that your sense as well? I think that we deprive kids of adult decisions uh, strangely. We educate kids the same way in, in high school as we do first graders. They still have that same structure where things are assigned and they're tested and graded and there's, there's not enough uh, expansion into that world that they so long to engage in. I have some stories in the book about young teenagers throughout history who uh, did all sorts of extraordinary things because they had the agency to do so. And I certainly have seen kids um, do remarkable things because they had the freedom to do so. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't risks and challenges and there aren't problems and mistakes. And uh, we have some idea that it, we can protect kids from all of those if we just structure it right until they're completely safe and completely educated and all grown up. And then we'll just tuck them out in the world like completed without having um, having had some substantial responsibility and taken some real risks on their own. But what we end up with is kids who take 
the only risks that are left to them or have, find meaning in the only things left to them, which is, you know, consumerism and peer pressure and um, drugs and things that should not be that kind of risk-taking. It should be real risk-taking. Bill Allred mentioned Robert Epstein's book, which I think was renamed Teen 2.0. And he came on the show, and we had, we had a lot of fun with that topic. I've noticed with my own kids, I had a very sort of significant moment. Our 19-year-old daughter went to live in Nepal on a gap year between high school and college. And uh, people have heard me tell this story before, but um, we shared a Kindle account. And it was when she started asking for things like man's search for meaning. I'm going to buy and download this under the Kindle account. It was really interesting to, to me to realize the degree to which, given independence, she was really ready to think about deep topics. There's a, there's a wonderful book by Maya Frost, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but she's somebody you should have on. It's, um, oh, okay. She's okay. been on. But she, she says there's a pivotal age between 14 and 21 or so where kids should be out there traveling and taking challenges on their own, which includes the inevitable screw-ups where their luggage is lost or somebody doesn't meet them and they're afraid and they're alone and they don't speak the language, which sounds terrifying to most adults, to most parents. But it is a, is a time when they see themselves as part of a larger world, they see other cultures, and to have protected children as much as we do in our society is, is almost cruel because they're, they don't see themselves as, um, they may see themselves larger in some ways than they are, but they also don't see themselves as capable as they are. So I've done a very poor job in the last several interviews of actually reserving time for Q&A. And I'm, I think I want to switch the Q&A now. And I want to give Danae a hand for being so willing to kind of openly ask questions here in what appears to be a very much of a choir audience. So Danae, um, I think some things you were worried or wondering about uh, passed by before I was able to read them. So I'm wondering if you would like to take the microphone. And is there a question you'd like to ask Laura that didn't get asked yet? If so, raise your hand. That's the hand icon at the top of the participant window, and I'll give you the microphone. And if anybody else would like to ask a question, please feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your hand as well. I'm going to take a response from Danae there on the... She was looking at the link. She may or may not be. <laughs> she was looking at the link. She wanted, oh, like we can't go back to the map because it actually gets lost with the, um, the, the dots that people put on there get lost. OK, so uh, Laura, I'll keep talking until someone else. Oh, Danae says she can't figure out how to raise your hand. OK, so Danae, there's a set of icons at the top of the participant window. There's a smiley face, a person with a, an away. There we go. And I'm going to give you microphone privileges. And we'll see if your mic works. To turn your mic on, you just click on the talk Hello. button that's at the very top left of your screen. Hi, Danae. Hi, Laura. How are you? There um, you are. I'm good. I, was, I guess my big question here is, um, 
this type of free-range learning that you're speaking of, and I kind of read in the excerpts of this webinar, how do we marry the public education and this free-range learning to catch our education system up to those we see of many other countries? Well, that actually isn't my expertise because I'm not a school teacher. I think that there's a lot that schools can learn from homeschooling or from democratic schools. And in part, that would, in my mind, be dropping standardized tests. It would be allowing children more freedom to, um, let's, let's, pick, uh, let's pick history for an example, allowing children more freedom to explore um, uh, say, you know, Roman civilization, they might want to explore it through art or through uh, games or through music or through um, all, all sorts of different food, through food. They could explore what is supposed to be the topic in the ways that, in, that excite them. And there are, there are many ways to do that with each subject. The second half of my book actually is divided by subject and gives ideas for um, very interactive, uh, kid-led ways to do those kinds of things. And Danae, I'm, I'm interested and, and because, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and again, um, the, the school where I do teach is very project-based learning. So what you just mentioned there is exactly how we would handle a topic such as, you know, the Romans or whatever working on. We give the kids, you know, lots of choices or ways to present or get their information as well as how they're going to be graded on it. Um, I commonly have the kids make up their own rubrics or grading system or how many points they think something should be worth um, based on their choices and what they, how they want to present um, whatever it is we're studying. I, I wonder if you can imagine stepping away from rubrics entirely and see the experience as something that's valuable without testing. Um, let's let's try a different subject. Let's go with um, language, English. Um, one of the things that was always very popular that we have done has been a playwrights group. And you know, there, I don't think there's any way to test anything there, but the kids would get together and they would uh, come up with storylines and they would work on these uh, for days or weeks and they would develop roles and costumes and props and very often the story would change and dramatic elements would be added and there would be arguments and I think there was a whole lot of personality and character development going on at the same time and what ended up happening was a, a production and it would be a very small production if we're talking six or seven year olds they would get a whole play done in an afternoon at the park and perform it on the, the, the you know the monkey bars and with you know, it's sixth, seventh, eighth graders, it would be an elaborate sort of thing. And I can't imagine a rubric that would work there, but I do know that kind of rich experience um, was an extraordinary learning experience for them. I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I think that um, in public education, I mean, we're tied, like you said, to standardized tests, which actually are changing to performance space. I'm actually involved in Ohio's pilot project for the new testing coming out. Um, it's very much, it, it's going to be very different than anything we've seen. Um, so because we are tied to the fact that they have to have some sort of grade, um, there is going to have to be rubrics and we can't do everything, you know, just for the enriching experience. But somehow we've got to, again, marry those two things together. And when kids go to college, I mean, that system hasn't changed, nor do I see it changing soon. And they've 
got to understand, you know, how to be graded or what to do on some sort of standardized test as well. Well, it's it's interesting that my um, my kids, I think the first test they faced was a driver's exam. Um, once they were pulled out of school, my youngest didn't have, didn't have tests at all, and um, I had the same school-based concerns about, oh, you've got to have this. Uh, my youngest is in school right now for uh, mechanical engineering, and I was relatively terrified that he had not had advanced placement, trig, and calculus, and all that sort of thing, and he's he's getting straight A's in engineering, and his classmates. Are, have had so little hands-on experience with, uh, with fixing things or with doing their own projects and measuring and being excited about it that they are struggling and falling behind. And so it's interesting for me to wrap my mind around how the freedom to do those kinds of exploration benefited him in ways that, believe me, by the time he was 17, 18 years old, I was absolutely terrified that he had chosen engineering. I, I told him several times, honey, you don't have to do something that hard. It's it's a whole different mindset to understand that we can perhaps move past that kind of um, testing grading mentality. So I turned off Denise's mic, and Denise, those were great questions. But I, we always end on time as a courtesy to our guests. So I want to leave you with one final question. It feels like if we were really to sit down with most people and talk about common sense and learning and success in life and participating in society and in business, that we would probably identify most of these things that you've discussed as natural learning. That just it, it's at some common sense level we know it, but it doesn't get translated into what we actually do as a country or as communities. Is there any way to understand that is that a human propensity to control others? Why would such natural common sense for most people not translate into policy? I don't, I don't have a clue. But I do agree with you that when uh, there was a study where people who were highly successful in their fields, and it was all sorts of things from surgery to, to musicians, were asked about the roots of their success, they pulled it back to something that had to do with their hands actual hands-on learning. And um, it was very often a self-chosen activity. They were building birdhouses or uh, you know, stacking firewood or something that gave them reflection time and helped them integrate uh, their interests and their experiences in some way that was hard for them to even sum up. And I don't think that we can sum something like this up in a little sound bite. It's too big. But we have to leave room for that mystery. And we haven't even been able to sum it up in an hour, which you have graciously given us. So Laura, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Steve. I'm, I feel like we missed a whole bunch, but Dwayco. <laughs> of course we did. And so if you want the rest, it's in Free Range Learning, How Homeschooling Changes Everything, a huge, fun book that uh, just uh, engaged me completely. Uh, available at your local retailer or probably Amazon. Thanks to Laura. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks, Danae. You are all terrific. Uh, don't miss next week the peer learning session, Peeragogy, with the Howard Rheingold's team. I'm not sure Howard's actually going to be there, but um, the peer learning team and Michael Fullen then on education reform and the change process. Thanks, Laura. 
Thank you, Steve. Hope everything goes well tomorrow. Take care. I appreciate it. You too. Bye. Bye, Bye. everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are.